If you were going to fix the 2014 Player's Handbook so that it can last another 10 years for us running our D&D and our 5th edition RPGs, what would you change? What are the specific things that you would take and change or fix in the 2014 Player's Handbook to make it last as long as you want it to last, maybe the rest of your life? We, we already know that the 2014 Player's Handbook is a really, really good book, that this version of D&D has had very long legs. It's lasted a long time. It's had more people playing it than any other previous version of D&D. And yet we're still on the cusp of watching a bunch of different companies, including Wizards of the Coast, put out new versions of the game. So we have Tales of the Valiant, we have C7D20, we have Level Up Advanced 5e, and we have the 2024 D&D books that Wizards of the Coast is putting out. But we also have this 2014 book. There are tens of millions of copies of the D&D Player's Handbook out there. While I'm talking about it, the, the Player's Handbook has gone on sale on Amazon again, now for $26. But there have been times throughout its history where it's been available for as little as $19 and has remained in the best-selling books on Amazon for many years. It is by far tremendously valuable. It is by far a tremendously popular book. And many millions of copies of it have been sold. So when we look at the fact that all of these new versions are coming out, it seems like a real waste to say, throw away that old player's handbook, those 20 million player's handbooks that are out there. Just toss those aside and we'll focus on all these new books that are coming out. So what I'm trying to figure out is how we, what, what we would have to fix. Is there something we could do to take the 2014 player's handbook and just nudge it forward a little bit just to fix the things we think absolutely have to be fixed in order to keep this game running as long as it can and that all of those copies all of those millions of copies of the 2014 player's handbook are still out there and still valuable to people and can still be used so that's a topic i wanted to talk about today i'm going to show you some of the things that i've been thinking about with this and including changing my entire perspective of the kinds of things that i wanted to do to, to fix the book. Before I even show you the things that I've been considering, I think it would be a really good exercise for you to sit down and look at the player's handbook, the 2014 player's handbook, and ask yourself this question. What elements of the 2014 player's handbook exist that are disruptive to the game, that hurt the game, that make the game that you have when you're sitting there with your friends at your table, that make it not work as smoothly as you would want it to work. That's the question that I've been bringing up to myself. It's not a matter of saying things like, well, one class is out of balance with another class, or one class is overpowered or another class is underpowered. There are certain parts of it that definitely are overtuned or undertuned. True strike. It's a it's an easy one to pick on because it's like, oh, you have to use an entire action in order to get advantage on your next attack. But there's so many other ways to get advantage on your next attack that it's really not beneficial. How come it isn't just a bonus action or something like that? So that, it's an example of something that's underpowered. Something that's overpowered is fireball fireball is well known to be overpowered for its spell you suddenly go from being able to do like 2d6 damage to three different targets to doing 8d6 damage in this huge blast and a lot of people look at it like a lot of people like it but my argument about fireball is it doesn't really disrupt the game you don't really have to tune an entire game around this thing when somebody throws a fireball it doesn't slow the game down to a crawl it really in my opinion it doesn't break the game it doesn't make the game not work as smoothly yeah it's really powerful but they're fifth level fifth fifth level you kind of jack the power up that really matters too one other important point is i'm not really talking about the dungeon master's guide or the monster manual i have lots of ways that i've been looking at the dungeon master guide and monster manual to try to make those books more useful 
You can find all that stuff on my website on Sly Flourish. You can pick up my books, Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master, the Lazy DM's Workbook, the Lazy DM's Companion, and the upcoming Forge of Foes. Those four books are really there to kind of say, hey, we know you have these other books. Here's some other things you can do with them to really make them work well at your table. But I'm particularly focused on the Player's Handbook because, A, there are more copies of the Player's Handbook than either the Monster Manual or the Dungeon Master's Guide because it focuses on players. But also it's one I haven't really looked at yet and said, like, what are the things we need to do to fix it? Now, in my own game, I generally haven't house ruled a lot. I have a sort of some fuzzy rules that I use, some, a, a few things that I've been doing. They're really lightweight. You, most people wouldn't even really consider them house rules, but they've made things run a little smoother. And you'll see, I've sort of codified those in the house rules that I'm looking at. But the question I have for you is when you're sitting down and you're looking at the player's handbook and what it's got, the 2014 player's handbook and what it's got, what are the elements that you say, yeah, this is really disruptive to the game? It either just drops a rock in the pacing of the game or suddenly every everything slows way down and we all have to like work through this thing because it's a pain or it's the kind of thing that as a GM you feel like oh because of this I have to rework my entire adventure I have to rework entire monsters and how they work I have to rework entire encounters or even entire campaigns because of one particular ability and what we'll, you'll we'll see some examples of what those abilities are at least from my own experiences in my own game but that's really the question it, mine, mine are not necessarily yours what are the things that you see that really get in the way of the 2014 Player's Handbook and D&D and, and in general, what are the things that are in the Player's Handbook that are getting in the way of making the game fun, that are making the game good and useful and usable at your table and keeping the game smooth and fun? That's what we're really, we're really talking about today. So over the last couple of days, I was thinking about this question and I said like, okay, I'm going to try something. I'm going to just write down the things that have been really bothering me, the things that over the last 10 years of playing this game that have really kind of bugged me and things that I just I just want to fix. I really just want to fix these things. And so I pulled up my regular template and I sat down. And I said, these are some things that I've been doing in my recent games or things that I really wish I could do or, or would want to do to take the player's handbook and make it just work a little bit better. And so I'm going to I'm going to walk through this, but I'm going to also talk about some of it. So one of them is ability score generation. I think the way ability score generation works in the player's handbook is really kind of outdated and there are definitely ways that it can both be easier more flexible and more fun for players to be able to play different races with different classes without having to worry about what racial attributes were associated with what attribute with what specific attribute so i came up with this you know very simple line and it's kind of like basically what tasha's does that when you choose a race the racial ability bonuses can be applied to any score with a maximum of plus two in any single ability. So if you're picking a particular race and it gets plus two in wisdom and plus one in charisma, you can instead put that plus two into any ability score and the plus one to any other ability score. You can't stack them all up on one and have plus three to any ability score. But you can move that two and that one wherever it goes. And I think that that one line captures that it might not be enough right when choosing a race or racial ability bonuses can be applied to any ability score with a maximum of plus two with a maximum bonus of plus two to any bonus score. so i could do a little bit of editing on that i've tried to do a little bit of editing on that then i also have the other one which i've talked about which is alternatively for faster character creation each character can use one of the following two ability standard arrays. And these ability arrays include ability bonuses already included. So you don't get a racial ability bonus. Instead, you just pick one of these arrays. 16, 14, 14, 12, 12, 8. Or 16, 14, 14, 12, 10, 10. That you can pick either of those two. You apply them and you're done. You don't have to do any calculations. You don't have to do point by. 
you just use those ability scores and, and they're set. So I like that one. I've been doing that in my games for now for a couple of years. It works really well. And for new players, the standard arrays work really well. Where it doesn't work well is like in D&D Beyond, you have to figure out how to put it in, but that's a big problem. So class and subclass changes. These are a couple of my ideas. One, paladins can only divine smite once per turn. That's to stop paladins from going up and just nuking a creature over and over again. And the question is, is that really disruptive? And you're like, it's kind of disruptive because like they're not burning their divine smites because they want to hang on to them until they get to that boss so they can just pour every single point of damage into the boss. That was one. The other one is the monk's stunning strike ability can only be used once per turn. So you can't go up and just spam stunning strikes against a monster, right? That's that's one where it was controversial. Boy, I got a lot of pushback on this stuff. So if you read these, you're like, these are terrible. Before you start writing me on YouTube or sending me an email, let me finish talking about it because I've changed my mind on a lot of these. But I wanted to show you what my thought process was originally. So, so don't yell at me yet. So those are a couple of class changes that I felt like these are class changes I've seen where I really feel like the balance is out of whack or I have to change things. I have to give monsters more hit points. I have to make sure that either my boss monsters are stun resistant. I have to do things to handle that. that those are a pain. Inspiration, the big one that I use is characters begin with inspiration at the beginning of a session. It doesn't carry over. Once expended, a GM can give inspiration in the middle of the game too. But basically, you start with inspiration, you get to use it during the session. It's really straightforward. Giving everybody inspiration at the beginning of the session means you don't really have to worry about it. It's, it's, it's pretty great. And exhaustion, I really like the exhaustion rules from the one D&D playtest, so I added them here, which is ex instead of standard degrees of exhaustion, that whole table, it's minus one to all attack rolls, saving throws, and ability checks for each level of exhaustion. And when you hit six, you die. I like that one. And then I had a whole bunch of spell changes. And this is where I got a lot of pushback. So I had a bunch of people like, yeah, this is, these make a lot of sense. I like them. And then a lot of people are like, why are you doing that? You're just nerfing stuff. And I don't like nerfs and nerfs, nerfs just make players not want to play. And it just pisses them off. And they're not wrong. Some of them were like animate objects that it has a maximum of four objects. You're going to see a whole bunch of these are basically don't summon more than a couple of creatures right animate objects can only do a maximum of four objects that way you don't have 10 you're not putting out 10 pythons and you're animating the pythons pythons however you pronounce it and then suddenly you have these like little things that are doing plus six damage and then you got to do all these attack rolls one player suddenly rolling 12 attack rolls pain in the ass arcane eye i've had this happen in a couple of games where somebody will cast arcane eye and they'll use arcane eye to reconnoiter an entire dungeon and then it's basically you talking to one other player for like a half hour explaining every room and what's in it that kind of i don't know what to do about that but arcane eye my fix here was it's not invisible so then somebody can see it and smash it I don't know if that really works. Banishment. Banished creatures can make a save at the end of their saving throw. Charm person. A lot of these are abilities that are like detrimental abilities that don't have a save at the end of the turn that probably should. Banishment, charm person, a, a, a few other ones that do. The conjure animals, conjure woodland beings, conjure fae, conjure minor elementals. You can only summon one or two creatures. You can't summon eight wolves. Eight wolves is a pain in the butt. Counterspell. This is one I took directly from level up advanced 5e. A creature whose spell is countered can use its reaction to cast a spell of a lower level than the spell that than the than the countered spell so if a mage casts fireball somebody counters the fireball the mage can then use its reaction to instead cast burning hands right something like that so they don't lose their entire turn because of that the wet balloon of, of counter spell forbiddens forbiddens is a real high level spell but it's one where you can like destroy an entire dungeon full of demons and stuff like that and i basically said that the damage that's inflicted by forbiddens only happens once it doesn't happen over and over again and wipe out entire dungeons Take a look at Forbidden's and you'll see what I'm talking about. Giant Insect, again, can't summon more. Goodberry. This is one where a lot of people feel like Goodberry completely breaks the idea of exploration because you never have to worry about food. You can just summon Goodberries and eat them. So I said, hey, Goodberries don't provide nourishment. That You still have to go out there and forage. You still have to go find food. If you, you go into a desert, you can't just eat Goodberries the whole time. 
Heat Metal. Heat Metal is a low-level spell, second-level spell, but it like completely debilitates certain creatures, and it doesn't have a saving throw. So a creature that's got like heavy armor on the creature, you know, is suddenly taking a bunch of damage, and they're disadvantaged on everything. Like if you're fighting like a Death Knight, you cast Heat Metal on it. They CR 19 Death Knight. You cast Heat Metal on it, and it's totally debilitated. It's disadvantaged for pretty much the whole thing. So. I was like, okay, instead it doesn't do disadvantage. You can still pour damage onto it. The damage is automatic. As long as they're holding on the object, you're doing 2d6 damage every turn, which is not bad for a second level spell. Like the damage is fine. It's the disadvantage that's a real problem, particularly on boss monsters. Heroes Feast, I've bitched about all the time. Heroes Feast, that it shouldn't, it should provide resistance to poison damage, not immunity. Tiny Hut. We talked about Tiny Hut. In here, I was like, I, I, I took this idea a little bit from level up 5e that essentially the Tiny Hut if it takes 25 damage in a turn, if one creature can go up and do at least 25 damage, they can shatter the hut. The idea is Tiny Hut's a great place to go rest when you're in a relatively safe place and you just don't want to be in the environment, but it's not a pillbox. It's not something that you can use. It's not. It's like a third level wall of force, right? It's this super powerful thing. Yeah, you can dispel it. Yeah, you can pile a bunch of monsters on it. I'll talk more about, about Tiny Hut. Pass Without Trace, the plus 10 stealth bonus. Pass Without Trace, like how to use it, is really kind of convoluted. And I've seen players who treat it like it's just massive invisibility. Hey, I can cast this on everybody. We can walk anywhere. No one can ever see us. The thing I make clear is that the stealth bonus only applies outside in the wilderness and not when you're in direct line of sight of an enemy. The second part is true anyway. Right? The second part is in the spell. It's just we don't often treat it that way. So I'm kind of defining that clearly. But the idea is like, Pass Without Trace is really your ability to go out into the wilderness and and maybe like look around a place. But the minute like you go into an old castle or old keep or you go into a city, too many people are looking at you. You can't just slide by with that plus 10 stealth bonus and nobody sees you. So that that's a little bit of a change. Polymorph and True Polymorph, they should get a saving throw at the end of their turn. Suggestion, they should get a save at the end of their turn. Wall of Force and Force Cage, these are high-level ways that, that, that players will often completely incapacitate a monster without it having to make a saving throw. Level Up Advanced 5e actually says if you are going to hold a monster, they get a deck save. I said also you can inflict 50 points of damage in a single tuner and shatter it. I love the idea of a death knight grabbing onto a force cage and ripping it open. I think that idea feels really cool to me. And I was trying to do that here. So a lot of the feedback that I got from this, I got some feedback that was like, yeah, these are good. And, and a lot of people are like with, on the monster thing. You're absolutely right. Like having one player who's controlling too many creatures at a time is very disruptive. And that was really one of the things that stuck out at me as like, that's a real problem that the, the, the 2014 players handbook has. A lot of this was like, you're just nerfing stuff, right? You've got whatever it is. 12, 14 different things, and you're just nerfing a bunch of stuff. You're just making the game worse for players. Players like this stuff. They like being heroes. They like using Tiny Hut as a as a way to be totally safe in a very hostile environment. They love to pin down monsters with Wall of Force. They love to have that. And why are you taking that away? And it's like, yeah, that's a good point. Now I have reasons why I'm taking it away, right? But I can understand why that didn't go about. So I was I was thinking about it a lot, and I was talking to some folks on the Discord channel, and I was thinking like, are are these really problems? Are these really things that are disruptive? Which things are not really disruptive? I had some things that were on here and then took them away because I was like, ah, that's just I think it's overpowered, but it's not necessarily disruptive. And then I said like, well, what about a different approach? What if instead of the approach is like I am nerfing these fifteen spells? It was instead talking to the players through a document and saying, hey, here are some of the things that I'm probably going to treat differently in the game and I'd like you to treat differently in the game for a specific reason. Like, why am I doing these things? Not so much what I'm doing, but why am I doing them? And then are there ways that I can move some of this stuff onto the DM side of the screen instead of telling players that their spells suck? So I took a totally different approach. I rewrote it. This is why you can yell at me after this next one. Don't yell at me about this one yet because I changed my mind. Instead, yell at me about this next one. This one you can, you can say I don't like it. 
That's probably, that's all. I mean, you can say you don't like it anyway, but I'll just ignore you if it's about the first one. So then I said, hey, first of all, this is just Sly Flourish's 5e house rules. Where do you get these? Right? Where are you going to get this? The answer is patrons of Sly Flourish will have access to it as part of Uncovered Secrets Volume 2. I may do a Sly Flourish article with this stuff. You can obviously see me, but probably your mine are probably a good example, but you're probably going to want to write your own anyway. I don't know that this is necessarily like the end all be all. Everybody should print this out and paste it in the front of their 2014 player's handbook. And now they're all, all those 20 million copies are better. Probably not. Better is like, this is, I'm, it's probably going to evolve for me. It's going to evolve as I play it with my players. You should make your own list. But if you want a copy of this, the way to get that copy is to become a patron of Sly Flourish. Patrons will get access to this as part of Uncovered Secrets Volume 2, plus a whole ton of other stuff. If you really want to help support the show, you're going to help me with the work I do, become a patron of Sly Flourish, and you can get access to this, plus much, much more. So let's take a look at this other revision. And the other revision is focused on the intention. Why am I putting these things in place? And how do I have a conversation with the players to say, hey, if we do these things, they're going to be less disruptive to the game. So I have like a different kind of introduction that the, in, the intent of the guidelines is to fast, you know, keep the game fast and fun where the characters get to be heroes in the spotlight and the GM doesn't have to rewrite adventures around particularly disruptive abilities. Ability score generation handled pretty much the same way I talked about before. Inspiration handled the same way I talked about before. Exhaustion handled the same way I talked about before. But then I have this boss monster consideration and many of the nerfs that I was doing to spells are because of bosses. They're because of big named NPCs, the big important creatures. Those guys, when you charm them or you banish them or you put them in a force cage or you do this stuff, that's where it really sucks. I don't care if you do it to minions. And in fact, controlling big bruisers, like controlling the, the, the sidekicks of a boss so that you can focus on the boss, I think is a totally valid tactic. But locking a boss down really pulls away the, the, the fun of the encounter. That to me, like there are spells that players... This is going to sound condescending. There are spells that players think they like, but in reality, it's not fun. And and a lot of times the example is if if you're fighting the Death Knight for the first time, it's your first chance to face a Death Knight and really see what that thing has. And you stick it in a force cage. That's lame, right? If you see a huge creature come up and you cast Banish and the huge creature disappears for the rest of the thing. And then maybe you all arrange yourself so that when it comes back, you can beat the crap out of it. When that becomes a strategy, it's boring. All right, it t the, the, the pacing goes down. It's too easy. It makes things too easy. When things are too easy over a period, it's fun to be too easy like one time. It's not fun to be too easy. If we were watching Raiders of the Lost Ark and you see the big hefty swordsman who's got his big scimitar and he's waving it all around and you're like, Indiana Jones is going to have to fight this guy and he just shoots him. You're like, that's funny and it's cool and we like it. What if he went through that entire movie just shooting whoever the bad guy was? Hey, there's Tote, bang. Oh, hey, there's Belloc, bang. Hey, here's that Nazi guy I don't like, bang. And he just shot all the guys and got Marion and got the Ark and left. How boring would that movie be if that strategy was the one he used for all of those guys in that fight plus everybody he did from then on that's what casting banish is like. Banish, you know, banish, 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 banish. Boring. This is where I say like boss monster considerations. Bosses in our games, i.e. the games I'm running with my players, not everybody's game, but our games, the games that we're having here at our table, bosses are more powerful than other monsters. A lot of the save or suck abilities that you're going to put on a normal monster just aren't going to work on a boss monster. That includes things like stun and charm. Anything that's going to pin a boss monster down with a single ability, probably not going to work. And even lower level boss monsters are likely to have legendary resistance, which they will use to get rid of those kinds of effects. Also, bosses can use legendary resistances to get rid of other things too. 
If you throw a force cage on them, they can use a legendary resistance to rip out of the force cage. If you cast heat metal on them, you can use legendary resistance to tear their armor off so that they're not affected by the disadvantage of heat metal. That they can use that legendary resistance to get through things. Some really powerful monster like a dragon's breath weapon can pierce through immunities. You're not going to charm them. You're not going to stun them. You know, any of the crowd control abilities that you would typically use to try to control the boss completely, they're just not going to work on this boss. Use them on other stuff. There will be plenty of monsters for you to crowd control but the named boss probably it's not going to work so that was the first one that a whole slew of spells are just handled now right a whole bunch of all those abilities and you tell the player up front this is don't expect charm monster to work on a boss don't expect dominate monster or hold person or these other spells to work on a boss it, it's just not going to do and then there's some other elements that say these are things that can generally be disrupted from the game from the 2014 version of fifth edition and i'm asking you as a player work with me on this stuff one be mindful of the time you're taking on your turn compared to other players particularly when you're summoning or using npc allies stick to one or two that when you're using any of the conjure spells animate objects animate dead or any of the other kind of summon spells stick to one or two creatures that way you're not taking up more time again we're aiming towards the spotlight right we're aiming towards the problem the problem is when one player has nine turns and another player only gets one because they summoned eight wolves i got me and my eight wolves so in this case you're saying please just don't do that just don't do that please don't multi-class just to get to shield so the idea of multi-classing just to get shield maybe maybe don't do that i like an alternative an alternative approach is that shield can't raise your ac above 21 and get an agreement with the players hey do we agree that this is okay that shield including monsters monsters have shield too and that monsters can't use shield to get their ac higher than 21 and that way you don't have like the i'm using my armor and my shield and my high decks and i can cast a shield spell and now i have an ac of 27 because that becomes a new thing now i have to i have to worry about that i have to think about Oh, if they manage to kind of suck up everybody's attention all the time and their AC is 27, entire battles tend not to work, right? Entire battles, like the threat of an entire battle gets disrupted. In the same kind of way that you're pinning down a monster, you're really like hindering the monster's ability to do anything. Because I'll tell you that that shield does not stack with the progression curve of monster attack bonuses. It just doesn't. And it shouldn't necessarily, but I, you know, I didn't do it. So I, I'm, I'm iffy on this one. A, because I am, I did write it just to pick on one person, but, but I have had other people who also are multi-classing just to get shield. He's not the only one that's done it. And I like that idea of like, maybe a shield can't get you past 21. 21's really high too. Like a 21 AC, that's a really high AC. Be mindful of the other GMs and other players when using spells like Arcane Eye to reconnoiter an entire dungeon. I don't know a fix for that, right? It's a good spell and it works out. I don't know a great way for a DM and a player who casts Arcane Eye to, to, to look at it, you know, to, to, to spy on an entire dungeon at once. It's a lot of material to give all out a good time. I don't, I don't know a good way to do it. I'm saying be mindful of, of doing that. Let's avoid the counterspell arms race. One thing we could all agree on, maybe as a player, you don't do it, I don't do it. I won't have monsters that are counterspelling your big spells. Likewise, I ask that you don't try to counterspell the monster's big spells. Alternatively, we could use the level up advanced 5e rule, which I kind of like, which is if you counterspell someone's spell, they can cast a lower level spell as a reaction. That's pretty cool. And I think, you know, I've had a lot of people like, yeah, that's a pretty good, that's a pretty good take on counterspell. So maybe that's a better way to go. Frankly, though, I'd just rather get rid of counterspell. If you have a familiar, if your familiar is active in combat, then it's active in combat. If it's not active in combat, I'll leave it alone. If it's active in combat, it could be hit by a fireball. 
right? You you could lose your your familiar a lot. If you keep your familiar back as just something that's kind of there and you talk to it, that's fine. If you bring it into combat where it's making attacks or it's giving you advantage on hits or it's doing flyby attacks or anything like that, that means it's a target. That way you can kind of decide what kind of familiar do you have? Is it sort of a companion character that you talk to that helps you out in the other two pillars of the game? Or if it's a combat advantage, it's going to get hit with fireballs and die. That can be good berries may keep you alive, but they're no substitute for good food. This is sort of taking the good berry thing and saying, hey, it doesn't provide nourishment. You can say, sure, it can provide nourishment, but you guys are going to be miserable. You really want to be foraging for real food. Get some meat in that diet. One good berry might keep you alive. It's not going to be a real fun, real fun existence. Pure immunity to any damage type, particularly for a whole group, makes huge swaths of monsters irrelevant and boring. Thus, Heroes Feast doesn't grant poison immunity. Right, it grants poison resistance instead. That one is just basically a direct nerf, but it really only affects anybody. And I've really only had it come up in one game. But boy, when you have poison immunity, whole slews of monsters are just not are 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 just not effective. This one is a bit controversial. Tiny Hut, that casting Tiny Hut in the middle of a dungeon just isn't likely to work out for you. Can you do it? Yeah, but the reality is when I've seen, I've had multiple groups. Again, Tiny Hut has been an issue for as long as I've been playing. People who are in a clearly dangerous area that are say, oh, because we're in a dangerous area, I can cast Tiny Hut and we'll be fine. We'll get eight hours and nothing can do it. And yes, I don't, don't email me. Don't send me. I know about Dispel Magic and I know that monsters can set up great big elaborate traps around the Tiny Hut. I know that we can do all that. That's still a disruption. Now we have to have another new scene where whatever the monsters did to deal with the tiny hut happens i had this happen in a scarlet citadel game they went into a new tomb they had just opened the tomb they hadn't explored it they didn't know what was in there but they were like we got beat up and we want to take a rest and they dropped a tiny hut right in the middle of an intersection of this place and i know like that place is full of whites there's a bunch of whites and a bunch of sarcophagi that are now woke up because the tomb was opened up and so i had i i they had their eight hours of rest and then i had like a black mist that flowed in during the night and they could see eyes on the other side so they knew there was something out there but they didn't know what and then whites knew they were there because they saw this great big tiny hut sitting in their hallway then the tiny hut drops down and they got attacked by six whites and they were like level four or five and it hurt them bad and they fought and they managed to defeat the whites and they killed them and they're like well now i need another long rest well so we had like an extra hour and a half of the game that was taken up with just dealing with the tiny hut now sure they were going to deal with those whites eventually anyway but i had to like shift everything and move everything around in order to deal with the fact that this tiny hut was there that probably wasn't ideal it was probably fun right but it probably wasn't ideal i've said this to the players since and it kind of makes sense because it's not a nerf i'm not saying tiny hut doesn't work but what i'm saying is if you set up tiny hut in the middle of a dangerous dungeon it's not likely to work out for you instead consider setting up tiny hut in an area where it's relatively safe yes it could be a dungeon you could say hey we've got this room we've cleared this area out we can barricade the door no one knows we're here we're setting up a tiny hut you could do that. And that, that's, all, that's not really that much different than you saying this, look, this room looks like a safe place to rest. Essentially, what you're doing as a DM is saying, I'm going to tell you when there are places that are safe for you to rest. This also controls the whole, like, how many rests you get in a day and how many rests can you have in a dungeon. I think if you hand that over to players who have Tiny Hut, then they're going to rest all the time. Because why wouldn't you? It takes no time at all. It takes one spell and you get the spell back because you just took a long rest. Why wouldn't you rest all the time and always be full on everything? But that's not great either. So instead, what you want to say is, like, there are safe places to rest and there are places that aren't safe to rest and i'm going to tell you where they are i think that that's better than trying to nerf tiny hut with like monsters can shatter it and stuff like that the last one is pass without trace pass without trace is a weird spell because like you, it feels like group invisibility it feels like you give everybody a plus 10 check on their stealth which is crazy high and like trust me that's it's already dumb like it's a dumb spell plus 10 is stupid 
but whatever. And you could just nerf it and say it gives you advantage on stealth checks. Oh, perfect. Fix. And, and maybe that's a better fix. Hey, Pass Without Trace provides advantage on stealth checks instead of a plus 10 bonus. But another way to treat it is instead to just, like Tiny Hut, hey, it ain't going to work indoors. It's not going to work inside of a big city. It works well in the wilderness. That's where it's intended to be used. It's an, and it doesn't work if creatures have line of sight, which is true anyway. That's true of stealth, period. We're just noting that fact. When people say, I'm going to cast, I'm going to cast Pass Without Trace, what I immediately tell them is, that's fine. You know that it'll work well outdoors when you're not in line of sight. It's probably not going to work well inside. I just say that to them. And they're like, oh, okay. And it immediately takes the idea down because a lot of them, uh, a, a lot of people feel like it's group invisibility and you want to make sure it, no, it's not group invisibility. So in this case, I'm just defining the role in the same way I define dark vision. I, I will often mention, hey, you go into a cave and it's completely dark. And they say, no problem, we have dark vision. I say, that's true. With dark vision, you will still have disadvantage on perception checks and a minus five on your passive perception. And they're like, oh, maybe we should light a torch, right? So just describing the rule, because that's the rule for dark vision and that's how it works in complete darkness. Complete darkness is low light, low light, you have disadvantage on perception checks. So just by saying how it works changes the behavior of the players. And that works. And that's maybe better than nerfing it directly. If you don't like these... I, I want to hear about it. And if you have other things, other areas of, that you feel like fifth edition is really like th rules that are in the player's handbook in particular are really disruptive to the game. They make the game not run well. I'm curious to hear what those are. And maybe there are ways to kind of handle that. And I'm, I'm always looking for like the one sentence or two sentence fix. I'm looking for simple fixes, not grand fixes. Because guess what? There's an entire development team in Washington that is focused on the grand fixes that are there, whether they fix it or not, that are going to be out there in the 2024 book. If we need a new book, we have new books. I'm looking at trying to fix the 20 million books that are already out there and trying to help you fix your book. You know, that for each of I think the answer is there isn't a fix for the 2014 D&D book. The fix is for you to be able to look at it and say, these are the things that are disruptive and these are the things that we're going to change and we're going to talk about with our players to make the game run smoother. I hope you enjoyed this video. If you did and you want to get a copy of these house rules or even the template that I used for them, you, be, you can become a patron of Sly Flourish. Patrons get access to a whole bunch of exclusive material, but most of all, they help me put on shows like this. You can also pick up my books, Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master, The Lazy DMs Workbook or The Lazy DMs Companion at my bookstore. Though, no, links for that are in the show notes below. Those books really focus on like how to run D&D games and how to what are the tools that you need at the table to run games smoothly. The, the companion is filled with stuff that I consider to be fixes for the DM side of the of the coin. So if you want to know what are the things that I can do to help the game run smoother as a DM, those are the books to help you out. Thank you all very much. Have a great day and get out there and play some D&D.